0: to the podcast. Our uh, guest today is Dr. Christy Campion, Senior Lecturer of Terrorism Studies at the Australian Graduate School of Policing and Security at Charles Sturt University. How do we refer to you, Dr. Campion? Just Christy's fine. Christy, <laughs> all right. Christy, thank you very much for coming on. We are talking about the resurgent right. Let me begin by asking, uh, well, first with a statement. I guess I, most people understand what Islamic extremism is. But what do we mean by right-wing extremism? Where does the term the right come from and what does it describe?
1: Yeah, so uh, the term right-wing is a bit of a misnomer, uh, for want of a better word. Uh, It is a term, an umbrella term, that broadly tries to capture some of the um, competing, varying and divergent ideologies within that umbrella. I think it's somewhat misunderstood to just mean, oh, they're more right than the Liberal Party. Right. Um, that's not the case <laughs> at all. Um, as far as conventional political spectrums go, they're not um, just right of right. They are you know way up above the line towards the authoritarian <laughs> measure. So uh, right-wing extremism isn't just uh, an advanced form of uh, right-wing politics in Australia. What it is is a... Uh, An umbrella term we use to describe ideologies that are authoritarian in nature, ideologies that um, have no value on personal freedom, uh, personal liberty, uh, the rights of minorities. We say uh, that they are um, anti-democratic because a lot of these uh, groups, a lot of these ideologies, they don't believe in democracy. Uh, They don't like um, democratic values. They don't agree with democratic values. Um, They believe that democracy is mob rule. And they're also uh, defined by a sense of holistic or exclusionary nationalism. So this is where you start getting people try and uh, define a citizen by their ethnicity. So these are people that believe in having a a white ethno state or um, separation between ethnicities within a state.
0: Yep. This is not new, however. This is a movement that has been around for quite some time.
1: Yeah, so uh, officially we can trace the organisations back to the 1920s. However, uh, some historians, they can trace the ideas uh, back a lot further. So in Australia, a lot of these ideas stem from this sort of um, siege mentality that Australia has always had about, you know, the yellow peril, uh, 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 about the threat of invasion from the north. These are general fears. They do feed into the ideology and they do feed into the formation of organisations. So... In the 1920s, when we had groups start to organise a- and form sort of paramilitary um, militias, they started to stockpile weapons, they were primarily doing that in response to what they believed was the communist threat. So in the 1920s, this is shortly after the Bolshevik Revolution, so they were really worried um, that there would be this um, breakdown of society and that the communists would come in. So they were uh, quite fascist in that sense. They, they wanted a very rigid... Hierarchically controlled government. When they um, they they sort of resided for a while, they then resurged uh, towards, uh, I would say, uh, the 70s and 80s, and once again, uh, that resurgence was in um, in correlation with the rise of uh, Certain policies in Australia. So we dropped the White Australia Act. That was a big one. Um, so they really rose up in um, in opposition to uh, the rise of quite left-wing uh, democratic pluralist policies. Um, so, you know, you have the sexual liberation, you have the civil rights movement, you have um, the indigenous rights movement, all these things. So they rose up again thinking, okay... Um, Societies, degraded societies going downhill, we're seeing societal decay, we need to rise up and confront it. More recently, uh, what I would call the third surge um, began around, I would say, in 2009. Um, this surge is again um, in response, so it's saying, okay, um, the great threat to our society right now is Muslim immigration and jihad, the threat of jihadist terrorism. Now these threats are not real threats but they're perceived threats, so these people perceive them to be a danger to their way of life. And so um, their response to it um, is quite reactionary, um, but it's also quite destructive to the society that they're claiming themselves to champion.
0: Yep. So is the underlying premise of their ideology racism?
1: Uh, no. So racism is a, uh, a characteristic of these groups, um, but it's not a central defining tenant. So racism, intolerance, discrimination... Um, these sort of things are fellow travelers for what they actually want, um, which is uh, generally they want uh broadly speaking, they want a society that is uh rigidly controlled. they want a society um, where everything is uh, uh, within the state's remit, where people have to basically do what they're told <laughs> they, yep. that they you know uh when you start seeing people um, figures in the extreme right talk about this, they always talk about the people that they dislike and they're people that others would synonymize with progression so they don't like um, hipsters. They don't like soy lattes, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> you know. Yep. Um, uh, Do any of us <laughs> really <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. come on. Well, we're going to get started <laughs> on vegans. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know, so, so they want society to fit this, um, this aesthetic that they've imagined, this mould. So they, they talk about things like, oh, we don't want, um, we don't want people to take drugs for example. We don't want people to go to doctors and get medicated. We want people to live this lifestyle where they're active and, um, you know, this concept of purity. And a lot of that relates back to sort of Third Reich ideas, so the Aryan sort of um, representation yep. of, of health as well.
0: Yep. So that brings me to the point then, I guess, that perhaps the the rise of the Nazi party is the most extreme example that we've seen in recent history of this Right-wing extremism is that correct, or
1: uh, yeah? So uh, one of the really bizarre things is you would think that World War Two and the Holocaust and all that uh, would have really delegitimized fascist ideology. Um, it didn't because these people, uh, people who believe these things, they're also quite conspiratorial. So they believe that there's some sort of conspiracy as to why Hitler did what he did or why Hitler failed. And so, like one of them even suggests um, that Hitler was tricked. Um, into launching uh, World War II uh, by the Jews because they wanted to make money. Right. you know. So they, they're able to revise history and twist history to suit itself, uh, to suit themselves. Um, so realistically, I would say that after the war, the reason why the ideology remained and it persisted is because of decolonisation. So you start seeing the fall of what were traditionally... Uh, white empires you know so um the commonwealth for example um the french empire uh yeah i can't remember the i can't remember the other one <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know so essentially people start thinking oh okay um you know our powers are ceding you know we're going to become a minority they start to sort of exaggerate the threat they start to catastrophize and, and feel like they're somehow um imperiled that the rights of others somehow mitigates their own um which, you know, they use to drive their narratives.
0: Right. So, I mean, if we look at what's going on globally at the moment in relation to a lot of the displacement that's happening throughout uh, the Middle East with people being pushed into various parts of Europe in massive numbers, if we look at what's happening on a geopolitical spectrum from the point of view of extremist or Islamic extremism and terrorism and all the rest of it, what sorts of parallels are we seeing between the rise of the Nazi Party pre-Second World War and what's going on today, and are we at danger, or how real is the risk that we're seeing history repeat itself to some degree?
1: Uh, to a limited extent. I, I don't think that democratic institutions are weak enough for these parties to uh, to to get in power, although Austria stands as a stark reminder that they can. Um one thing I would say uh is interesting is that um current leaders in the extreme right they use um narratives from World War II as a way of um as a as a metaphor for what we are currently going through and so um Tom Sewell of the large society uh, he talks about uh the Weimar Republic and he says, well you know this was a time of of chaos and disorder um uh and and a time of um great societal upheaval that's what we're going through right now, and so there's sort of this implicit promise that at the end of that there's order, and that order is um not ex- not explicitly said but it's implied to be some sort of um national socialist third Reich uh but that's just what, what is yeah. the
0: Weimar republic that's oh. <laughs> right
1: <Sorry. laughs> um, <laughs> oh God. How do I describe that? Uh, so, essentially, he's uh, using it as a metaphor to describe the events that were in the lead-up to um, to Hitler's rise to power. So, before um, before they managed to um, basically take the chancellery and declare the emergency powers, all that sort of thing. So, right. he uses uh, pre-Nazi Germany as an example of um, a flawed society. Okay. Uh, and, and that's significant because he's essentially correlating that with right now. And then he talks about things like the housing market. He talks about things like um, the employment market. Um, They talk about our current political parties and they're able to draw a picture of um, social, uh, societal, political disorder. You know, a society that's inherently broken, that's materialistic, um, that's so industrialized that it no longer has value for its citizens. Uh, and if you're someone that's already feeling disenfranchised, these sorts of ideas uh, will really resonate, um, particularly if you are uh, already subscribe to one or two of their of their um, foundational concepts. So, you know, I- if you Uh, are trying to buy a house and you can't buy a house because you don't have a good enough job and then these people come along and go oh well the reason you don't have a good enough job is because we've had all this immigration and the immigrants have taken your job and this is why we shouldn't allow any more immigrants and the next thing you know it's escalated and they're thinking okay well we need to expel immigrants and have a pure white Australia.
0: Right. Um, Which I guess leads us to the next part of this which is what we saw take place in Christchurch with uh, Brendan Tarrant where he released his manifesto and then went and carried out a, a terrible, terrible act. That is an example of extreme, or well, I guess that's why it's called right-wing extremism, but that that that's an example of it at its most extreme. Are we giving enough attention to right-wing extremism from a security point of view compared to the amount of time and attention that we're giving to, say, Islamic extremism?
1: Uh, that's a tricky question. Um, statistically, the devotion of all these resources um, to the jihadist threat is fairly well supported. Um, I think the issue perhaps isn't with the resources that, um, that police and intelligence agencies have, but rather um, with the information that they have. So in Australia, um, this sort of research has been the domain of labour historians, um, which means they're historians who are talking about working-class labour movements, um, not labourers in the political party. Um, So since 2016, that's really when you start seeing academics engage with this. So um, there's work going on at Griffith University, there's work at Victoria University, and of course we're doing some stuff at Charles Sturt as well, um, looking at um, trying to capture... Um, the ideas, the ideologies, the strategies of the extreme right in Australia. Now, it is extremely under-researched. And I think it's a tall ask for us to expect police or intel to have all the answers when even academia hasn't really been looking at it um, seriously for very long. Um, So I I guess we're all trying to sort of get on board and do as much research as we can to try and... um, Create that foundational knowledge base. Uh, I know with my own research, with my own publications, um, there are a number of people in industry that I do distribute it to to make sure that you know that they're actually getting that information as well. Um, for some, for some of them, it's stuff that they know already, but for others, it's like, oh, okay, that's a, a new perspective or or an insight that we didn't already have. Um, so in a way, I think universities can do their their fair share to ensure that we get a firmer idea about what this threat is and then we can start forming um counter narratives because at the moment um uh, i'm yet to come across a cogent counter narrative that debunks um the narrative that's perpetuated by people like Blair Cottrell I'm yet to come across, uh, you know, either official or unofficial people explaining, okay, this is why fascism is incompatible with democratic institutions. You know, this is why um, your idea is inherently flawed. This is how many people in your community would die if your ideas were carried out. Mm. Um, Their ideas aren't being challenged. Um, They're being... uh not so much um, mocked, but definitely overlooked, or uh, people just aren't thinking. Okay, we don't we don't need to challenge that. and It's like, well, actually, we do, and we need to spell out exactly why these ideas are flawed, um, because otherwise, you get people like the Christchurch attacker, who you know um, subscribes to this ideological nexus. Um, you know, he's reaching out to these groups, he's engaging with these groups, he's then going on a world tour, visiting places that validate and reinforce those worldviews, and then he's coming to you know uh, an allied nation and killing their their citizens their unarmed civilians Mm. you know so i think that we all have a responsibility in um in taking a closer look at this Uh, it's not something that i think is entirely the job of police and intelligence services
0: right It seems to me that the danger of this particular ideology is that it's a slow burn ideology. I mean, it's not something that you just come out with and everyone goes, yeah, great, fantastic, let's all jump on that bus. Um, It seems to be a bit more insidious than that in, in so far as what you were describing before sounds perfectly reasonable almost to maybe the average Australian of, you know, well, the reason you can't buy a house is because of X, or the reason you can't get a job is because of Y which any of those pillars taken in isolation might sound reasonable to some people. I mean, I'd sort of tend to look at it and go, seriously. (laughs) Uh, But, you know, if you put those in the the public domain over a long enough period of time, it creates that slow burn where these things start to build momentum. So, uh, I mean, I guess the point I'm trying to drive at is what we saw take place in, in Christchurch was obviously The extreme culmination of all of that. But are we we at danger of seeing over the next few years more of that kind of thing?
1: Yeah, I think we are. I think um, part of the problem is that uh, these propagandists for the extreme right, they actually really know what they're doing. So there's an entire section of Stormfront that explains how to make a meme to spread deliberate misinformation you know so, so they're they're digital natives they know what they're doing they know how to to um they know how to create catchy slogans they know how to distribute those slogans they know how to go viral um and so what they're able to do is they're able to um take things that are quite common so um they'll take um you know they'll take the legend of ned Kelly. you know they'll they'll take the um the stories about pioneers they'll take um you know They'll take uh, stories about diggers, uh, about Aussie mateship, things that are entrenched in our culture and things that we are all um, in some way or another um, subscribed to and they'll use that almost as, uh, as a veneer for their ideas. And so people will come across these ideas and they'll be like, oh, you know, that's fairly reasonable. Uh, but underneath it, I think people aren't aware of the, the ideological intention. So it's one thing to have people, you know, um, agreeing with um, the concept of rebellion and the Eureka Stockade. It's another thing um, to say to these people, okay, well, you know, the way we fix society is A, B and C. Now, unfortunately, people are attracted with that uh, or to that veneer of uh, Australian pop culture or uh, Australian history. And they start to subscribe to the group, they join the group, they get this sense of meaning, they get this sense of purpose, this sense of community. And so by the time they're exposed to the more radical ideas, um, the more extreme ideas that threaten harm to people, uh, they've already subordinated their critical thinking, they've already sort of switched off the active brain that would question that, because they've found, in a way, uh, a a sense of value in belonging to that group, and they don't want to endanger that value by, um, by disagreeing. And if they did disagree, it would uh, <laughs> terminate their their uh, their time with that group. So, in the um, uh, in in the late 80s, there were cases of people um, seeking to to leave these movements and facing violent violence from their from their fellow movement uh, fellow uh, members. I'm trying to remember the other part of your question.
0: <laughs> That's all right. I was, I was going to say. Oh. It, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me that if you look at Islamic extremism, the Muslim community and the Islamic communities have probably for the last 20 years been subjected to that kind of propaganda. Propaganda. So in some ways they're aware of what they're seeing, they're forewarned of the of the tactics that are being used, and they can in some way psychologically perhaps prepare for the kind of material that they're going to be subjected to but we're really naive when it comes to this sort of thing you know in one of your presentations i saw you put up a picture of an attractive young blonde white australian girl sort of you know using her as the role model of you know empathize with her she's just like you she's being you know uh, i suppose um exposed to prejudice and and all these sorts of things and If you're not aware of what you're looking for, you might empathise with that message and think, wow, yeah, I I can see how that's true. Maybe I should be adopting some of these things. Is it that we're just not experienced enough to understand what's going on here?
1: Yeah, I think the problem is we've had um, 18 years of saturation, essentially, in being told that the big terrorist threat... Uh, was jihadism. And I think that was really easy because people, um, it's so much easier to get people to feel the other. A- and, and in what, uh, what we've seen in Western nations is, um, the Muslim other has become this sort of exotic, um, but popular trope of what the terrorist threat looks like, uh, so we're not used to it looking exactly like ourselves. <laughs> mm. <laughs> not because it hasn't existed, um, but because it definitely doesn't get the same the same amount of press. So, uh, for example, in two thousand and eighteen in the United States, you were more likely to be killed by a white supremacist than you were to be killed uh, by a jihadist. Mm. Um, when that news went public, uh, the uproar was huge. Um, the researchers that uncovered that, um, they had their funding withdrawn by President Trump. <laughs> surprise, know, surprise. You know, so it's an uphill battle um, to get people to recognise the right-wing threat and to say, well, you know, uh, it might look reasonable or it might look like this, but this is actually what they intend. Um, and, and I think it's worth as well investigating, okay, um, you know, If you take uh, Christchurch, his central tenet is that uh, it it comes down to the birth rates, but then he has page after page of Wikipedia links to support him. You know, people need to start thinking critically and going, hang on, is Wikipedia a reputable source? Absolutely, (laughs) just like the (laughs) drunk guy down the pub on Friday afternoon. Exactly. Um, So people aren't, uh, I think in general, thinking critically about what the threat, Uh, is what the threat looks like and what grievances they're using uh to drive it and so i think the australian public um for many well the conversations i had with you know the girl that makes my coffee and taxi drivers and that sort of thing is that they were saying well terrorism doesn't look like this it's like well no actually it does um and it's looked like this for a very very long time so uh another example from the u.s um so, in 1996, Timothy McVeigh uh, detonated a truck bomb uh, in Oklahoma City. It killed a large number of people, in, including children, in a childcare centre. At that point, uh, it was almost one of those crucial moments in history where it looked like all of our resources, all of our um, uh, focus was going to be going onto uh, the right-wing threat. You know, and this is this is after the Turner Diaries. This is around the same time as Waco Ridge, um, and oh, sorry, Ruby Ridge and Waco Siege, and then September 11 happened, and it's just overnight all the focus on this, all the knowledge of the threat, uh, it just dis- disappeared, and all of a sudden the threat was in the Middle East somewhere, um, and it was represented by you know people that have uh were very easy to stereotype.
0: Mm. And that's that's the thing that I think gets lost on a lot of people these days is they look at what's happened in the world of terrorism over the last 15 years and think you know it's all down to islamic extremism they forget that they don't have the that they you know islamic extremists do not have the monopoly on violence white people have been committing extremely stupid violent acts for a very very long time before we even heard of islamic extremism
1: absolutely and uh one of the the things I frequently deal with is people feeling quite defensive when I talk about right-wing extremism. And they go, oh, yeah, but, you know, what about left-wing extremism? Uh, You know, (laughs) what about all these other types of extremism? What about what now? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, well, you know, uh, if you uh, look at the history of terrorism, you'll see that every single ideology has exploited uh, uh, various sorts of politics um, to pursue their agendas of violence. So the terrorist ideology uh, is unique in that the use of violence becomes a central tenet. Um, uh, so when we're talking about right-wing extremist ideology, what we're also talking about is people who believe that violence um, forced Uh, forced removals, um, expulsions, deportations, that they're a valid thing to do to your own citizens. Um, And I think part of the flow-on problem is that people go, uh, you know, like, what are Australia's values? And then they go, okay, well, does the deportation of Australian citizens (laughs) fit in with Australian values? Um, And, of course, this brings up all these other issues and, and it just sort of flows on to the, into this uh, sort of complex mess of, uh, of um, self-identity questions. Who are we? What do we represent? What do we want to represent? And I think over time, that's uh, our commitment to our own values has uh, potentially wavered. Um, when we look at the handling of um, the refugee crisis, for example. So there are certain states, uh, certain nation states such as Germany, who have held to their own values. And that's been really significant to see. Um, As a result, the extreme right have put Angela Merkel on the top of their to kill list. But essentially when you get politicians that do adhere to the values of their state, um, they face a lot of vitriol.
0: So, I'm a security manager within an organisation. I'm familiar with Islamic extremism, but what are the warning signs I'm looking for if we're trying to prevent this right-wing extremism from taking hold and causing major incidents that I'm going to have to deal with?
1: Uh, There are two sides to that. So, uh, one thing about the extreme right is that, uh, mainly because they've been around for such a long time now, Uh, you know, I would say formal movements are about... Sixty or seventy years old, um they are w- well aware of the different strategies that they can use, so it's not just terrorist attacks like what we saw at Christchurch. Uh, we had a group in um, in the sixties plan uh Sorry, too close oh, no. <laughs> uh, we had groups in the sixties who actually sat back and went, uh, okay, uh, we don't think we can win an election, so how can we still execute power. And so they actually started um, joining the Liberal Party and uh, i think the national party was another one of their targets and they had a deliberate strategy of what they called elite penetration so like we're going to join their parties and we're going to replace their core values we're going to branch stack Uh, we're going to block vote at meetings and uh, replace their core values with our own we're going to write to them we're going to pressure them we're going to use as many networks as we can to fundamentally turn uh, their ideology towards ours now In, I think it was 2017 or 18, uh, we saw the Lads Society do the exact same thing. So they joined the Young National Party and uh, they essentially engaged in branch stacking to replace the core values of the National Party, the Young National Party, with their own. Um, So it's not all outright violence. In other areas, it's quite subversive. One thing that uh, the Christchurch attacker also flags is that he encourages people to, to gain executive roles, um, he calls this, uh, I think it's called the um, the dominance move, or so the lightning move, or something like that. Right. But es- um, but essentially, the idea is is that uh, he's encouraging his followers to get positions of influence and to then act uh, in such a way as would benefit the ideology itself. Um, so those are just a few of the strategies that they've used in Australia in the past. Um, and so the threat is quite subversive. On the other hand, how do we recognise these people? Uh, and unfortunately, it's uh, it, it can be quite difficult. So, for example, um, people can change quite quickly. So, s- someone like Tarrant, we know that he had quite a long radicalisation phase. You know, that's we can we can assume that from his two years overseas. Uh, others uh, they can radicalize quite rapidly and with the advances in um, in social media and with the accessibility of uh, materials on the internet you're now able to self radicalize at a much faster rate than what you normally would be able to um, and so you're able to go from someone that's just sort of moderately inclined to that sort of ideology to you know a diehard fascist quite quickly mm. um, these sorts of things, uh, I always are on the safe side, and I would always say they should be reported um, to the relevant authority, whether it's your your local police talking to them, whether it's uh, you know calling um, the national security hotline. Um, particularly uh, rapid changes in, in people's positions, so maybe they were left wing and maybe they were you know supportive of marriage equality and uh, were generally considered pr- quite progressive. And then the next day, they're talking about how Tarrant had the right idea and how the white race is imperiled. That's someone that you should refer to the National Security <laughs> Authority, right? Um, uh, because they can make the assessments that maybe we can't.
0: Yeah, I know we touched on this briefly before, but I mean, how do we combat this kind of thing?
1: Uh, well, I mean, it's tricky. Um, all like when when it came to Christchurch, I know that there was some people that were dissatisfied, that they believed that um, something had been missed, that someone wasn't doing their job properly, you know, how come Tarrant wasn't on a watch list, all that sort of thing. Um, And realistically, it is very difficult to combat because these groups have devised strategies to deliberately remain below the threat detection threshold. So one of those strategies is something called leaderless resistance. Uh, It was popularised by... uh, uh Louis Beam in I think it was in the eighties and essentially um he said, Well, you know, um the, the, the government has all these um, abilities to prevent and thwart a well considered attack. So the best way to to uh, launch an attack is to um not be in contact with each other or, or to create what he calls phantom cells, so small groups of people um who act in unison uh to achieve uh the ends. On the other side, we see what we'd call hive terrorism, which is where you see people that um, are sympathetic to the worldview spontaneously engage in terrorist acts on the behalf of that. So um, in the wake of Christchurch, we saw that happen, I think, in the US as, uh, as well. Um, and so realistically, uh, because they have these strategies, they're not creating the usual chatter um, that, that authorities would normally be able to detect. If they're not purchasing, say, bomb-making material, they're not setting off any flags there. Yep. You know, if they're not talking to people in Syria, they're not setting off any flags there. Yep. Um, so that's hard, to, that's hard to catch. The other side of it is um, a lot of these groups, even if they are engaged in with uh, international counterparts, those counterparts aren't prescribed groups. So they're completely legal to talk to they're completely legal to engage with uh if you go to the ukraine and fight there that is completely legal and you can return and not be (laughs) charged with foreign fighter laws yeah um so because these groups aren't prescribed uh, because they aren't prohibited people are able i think to get much further along uh, than what they normally would so i think in response to uh how do we counter that? I think the uh, returning uh, terrorist fighter laws definitely need uh, another look over to make sure that they have application cross-ideologically and not just specifically targeting uh, fighters who are returning from the Middle East.
0: Yep. And the counter-narrative. What, what kind of counter-narrative needs to be driving, uh, you know, overcoming this challenge and, and preventing this right-wing extremism?
1: Yeah, I think that uh, the Canon Narrative is definitely um, a project that um, that needs to be done with reference to uh, psychologists as well as law enforcement, as well as intel and other uh, stakeholders. Essentially, we need to start looking at, okay, what are these people arguing and why doesn't it fit? You know, why is it un-Australian? And these the issue is that we would all just assume... Um, that people are not resonating with these ideas. We go, oh, well, why bother creating a counter-narrative? But these ideas are resonating with people. Um, and so we need to think, okay, what are the central ideas and themes? How can we articulate that they are, um, you know, not doing service to society? How can we articulate the so- society that they would create? Um, because I think uh, one of the significant things about Terence Manifesto is that you're essentially reading 70 pages of complaints he doesn't offer a solution. He says pick up a gun and go and shoot people, sure, but he doesn't offer a solution for how um, he would like to see the Australian white ethnostate be, be instituted. And so these gaps in their logic, these flaws in their arguments, they need to be picked on just as much as we need to engage with ideas like, um, with, with ideas like what a fascist state actually looks like, um, One of the great contradictions that always um, strikes me in researching these groups is they all claim to be um, avowedly committed to freedom of speech. Well, you can kiss that goodbye in a fascist government because they're not going to let you do that. So, But that's not being engaged with.
0: Christy, thank you very much for your time today. If people want to find out more about you or the research that you're doing, is there a way that they can do that?
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, you can email me through my uh, details on the uh, Australian Graduate School of Policing uh, and Security's website.
0: Excellent. And ladies and gentlemen, if you would like other podcasts like this one, don't forget to check out the ASIO website. You can find these podcasts on Blurberry, iTunes, Spotify, Google and all the places that you find great podcasts. Thank you very much again for your time.